As the new century begins, the realities of Utah's statehood bring into question the church's role in politics. Reed Smoot, an apostle, is elected to the United States Senate. His confirmation hearings bring great national scrutiny on the church's stand on polygamy. This tense time is discussed next in Chapter 7, On Trial. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today is Ken Cannon, a lawyer and independent historian. Thanks for joining us today, Ken. We're so glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, Ken, we're almost through the first quarter of the book. Can you tell us what you think of the Saints volumes so far? I find them to be very high quality. They're very engaging. They're very personal. Taking scenes from individuals' lives, I think, is a very comfortable inviting way to present saints in comparison to prior generations of official church histories. They sparkle. They're more transparent. They take on some difficult issues. And so I've been impressed. Well, thank you so much for for sharing that. We'll now turn our attention to chapter seven. There's a lot going on in this chapter, but Perhaps we could start by talking about the passing of President Snow and Joseph F. Smith's ordination as the sixth president of the church. And I I wonder if you could say anything about the speed at which this presidency change takes place, because previously there had been these rather large gaps. With President Snow, it was a little bit faster. A lot faster, actually. Why were the changes made so soon after the passing of President Snow? I think that they learned from earlier delays in reconstituting the first presidency that it created institutional issues. And I think when Lorenzo Snow was told by the Savior he should do it quickly, it was a very wise thing. And I think always has been followed after that. Even though a lot of issues were potentially avoided by this quick appointment. What were some of the problems that Joseph F. Smith did face as a new president? You know, some of these problems were continuing, some of them were new. Can you just speak to some of those problems and issues he was facing? There's a really good book by my friend Tom Alexander called Mormonism in Transition. I mean, this is the biggest transition that occurred in the church in the 1890s. Polygamy was formally abandoned, but that wasn't all. The church into 1890-91 had its own political party that it really expected everyone in the church to be part of. It was called the People's Party, and they voted uh, together. It was also problematic because it was perceived as a great voting bloc that created a lot of animosity towards the church. There were other sort of doctrinal issues that changed in the 1890s. When the manifesto was issued in 1890, it created sort of a time of goodwill. People thought, okay, that Latter-day Saints are finally abandoning polygamy. Uh, Maybe we can accept them now. Then there were allegations, and the allegations got louder and more frequent during the 1890s, that the Mormons really had not given up polygamy, but were secretly practicing it. Part of that was perfectly understandable, which is families remaining together. You know, a man who has two or three wives continuing to live with his wives and families. That, you know, it had its own problems. The real problem was new marriages that were authorized and solemnized during the 1890s. And Joseph F. Smith, it's not like he hasn't been part of that, 
But all of a sudden, he is the spokesman for the kingdom. He is the prophet, and he has to step into it. So it was it was a difficult time. I certainly don't envy President Smith. I can only imagine the pressures that he's facing very early on in his presidency. So maybe we could just turn our attention to Reed Smoot now. We have this introduction to him in the book, but could you tell us a little bit more about Reed Smoot and and what he was like? Reed Smoot comes from a prominent church family. His father's Abraham Owen Smoot. He is very confident. He's smart. He is uh, socially skilled. He marries a woman named Allie, and I want to say her, her maiden name was Eldridge. She came from a very wealthy uh, Salt Lake City family. Uh, Reed's wife's family had money, and that was an important thing. Reed Smoot was ambitious. Reed Smoot was very much a partisan Republican, uh, as was Joseph F. Smith. I mean, one of the problems with Joseph F. Smith was he was a very partisan and had been throughout the 1890s Republican and got into some snits with some senior church leaders who were Democrats. Reed Smoot came on the scene, was very interested. President Smith clearly wanted somebody in the United States Senate to represent Utah, but also from an LDS perspective. And he did. He went from being reviled uh, over 10 or 15 years to being widely respected, hardworking, smart, good politician, had a grasp of everything, and maybe not everyone liked his politics, but pretty much everyone thought he was really good at what he did. And so the proof was sort of in the pudding. I mean, he weathered the investigation of him a lot better than most people would have. He did it with a calm demeanor, and, you know, he got worried a lot because there were lots of things to worry about, but he was probably the guy to, if you're going to have an LDS senator, he was the guy who should have done it. Well, Ken, for those who are unfamiliar with the election process in the United States of America, can you explain this significance of Reed's elected office? Yeah, so the United States Senate is probably the most powerful parliamentary body in the world. You have two senators per state, and it is the most exclusive club uh, in the world. And senators have enormous power, and it doesn't matter if you are from New York or California, or if you're from a small state like Wyoming or Utah, you have the same number of senators. And so it's by states, it was done by the, there was an important compromise in the United States Constitution, which gave rise to the election of the Senate and having all the states equally uh, represented. Reed Smoot being elected there was as a, as a Utah, and, and it's interesting, you know, when Reed Smoot was elected in 1903, I think, maybe 04, because the the way that senators were elected was not every November by popular vote. They were elected by the state legislature after the state legislators were elected in November. I think it was the 16th Amendment, which changed the process so that senators were popularly elected. But literally, you're not elected by everybody in the state. You're elected by the 100, 120 legislators sitting in the Capitol building. And so on, on the one hand, it's, it's less of kind of a populist political process, but in certain respects, it's really more of a political process because you can't have any enemies uh, in the state house or you're not going to get elected. And the fact that he was able to be elected showed how politically astute he was. But Senate is a very powerful place. Thank you very much for that. I think there's a lot of international listeners and readers who 
maybe don't know or get confused about how that all works. But so clearly, this wasn't just a local position. This is a national deal. This is senators are also elected for six years. Uh, representatives in the House of Representatives are elected for two. And so you don't have to worry about campaigning every a year. If you're in the House, you got your, you're constantly campaigning. If you're a senator, you have four or five years off from campaigning. It all sounds like a tremendous amount of hard work either way. But yeah. So one question for you then, Ken. We read in the chapter how the first presidency give permission for him to run for office, and they feel that Reed will be able to do good for the people of Utah. What was the church expecting out of this? It was controversial. Part of the problem was Joseph F. Smith knew exactly what he wanted Reed Smith to be doing. Other people in the church leadership who may have had different political views, maybe not so much. And in fact, I wrote an article that was published two or three years ago about the 1914 election where a guy named James Henry Moyle, who's a very prominent Latter-day Saint, uh, served in Washington, had very high, was like the assistant secretary of the treasury eventually, had a very close election. And it was a pretty nasty election between two very devout members of the church with one of them going after the senator who happened to be a member of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles. And it created complications. It just did. What I think President Smith wanted was someone there who could try to affect important issues, political issues that the church cared about, moral issues that the church cared about, and have him as kind of the guy there to keep his eye on what was going on. And I think he succeeded in that. I think Joseph F. Smith was probably very, very pleased with how Reed Smith did his Senate for a long time, like 30 years. He served five terms. I think politics in the church is just one of those really interesting subjects because Utah, out of many of the other states, is such an anomaly in how it came to be. It's the type of people living there. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of Europeans who joined the church in Europe in the 1840s, 1850s, and they come over. And we know that many of those people were, for example, chartists or people who were social reformers. And so you have this fascinating pot forming in Utah of people from all over the place. And the church obviously has leaders across the spectrum of political views. It did. And, you know, until 1890, they all tried to get along politically. After that, they really didn't so much. And it caused big problems from 1896 when the church in general conference approved what's popularly called the political manifesto which was written by George Buchanan, who was kind of the political brain trust of the church until he died, which said that for someone to run for office or have any other major high-profile public position, they needed approval of the first presidency. It wasn't clear before that. And in fact, in the election of 1895, which was in an odd year because Utah was being made a state and they needed to elect officials to serve uh, beginning in 1896 when it would become a state, there were two senior church leaders, Moses Satcher, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and B.H. Roberts, who was a member of the, the Seven Presidents of the Seventy, who ran one for House of Representatives, one for the Senate, without getting first presidency approval. And it created an enormous ruckus. And in uh, April of 1896, the church leaders and the church in conference approved this political manifesto. And Moses Thatcher, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, was so mad he wouldn't sign it and he got dropped from the quorum over these political issues. So politics creates lots of interesting issues for lots of really wonderful people. So 
read Smoot. He had a lot of criticism, a lot of complaints, and Senate leaders were compelled to look into these. And there was going to be an investigation into his personal life and into the church. Let's listen to an excerpt from the book that talks a little bit about the situation. Although the threat of investigation loomed over the church, Joseph F. Smith believed that Reed should keep his apostleship and his Senate seat, confident that he could do more good in Washington than anywhere else. President Smith saw the investigation as a chance to help people better understand the saints and their beliefs. So church leaders decide to allow Reed to continue as an apostle. And with that, Ken, how do other church leaders view or react to this decision, considering the recent controversy and the political manifesto? That's a really interesting question that I never really focused on as much as I've read about it. My guess is that there was some pushback on it, because this wasn't a matter of Joseph F. Smith saying, oh, yeah, Reed, you can run for the Senate and remain an apostle. This was Joseph F. Smith saying, Reed Smoot, as an apostle, you are going to run for the Senate. It was not a matter of, gosh, you get to stick around. It was a matter of, we want you to be our guy in Washington, D.C. And very clearly, the guy who was really supplying information, pulling strings, trying to make sure that Reed Smoot did not remain in the Senate was Frank J. Cannon, who was a Mormon blue blood who turned on the church and became the single most effective anti-Mormon agitator in the history of the church. Interesting thing. It's funny because his father, George Q. Cannon, the people he liked the least were not people who attacked the church from outside. They were people who had been inside, who were knowledgeable insiders who turned on the church. Those were the people that he had the least patience for. And yet his son becomes this very, very prominent anti-Mormon, made a lot of money through the 19-teens giving a lecture series called The Modern Mormon Kingdom, which was anything but a friendly lecture. I would imagine that given how new the political manifesto was and how recent some of these controversies, it must have been rather hard for some of the Democrat leaders of the church, but they obviously followed the prophet, they got in line, and I'm sure they might have raised their concerns privately, but as a group, they supported the decision and we do see all of these things come out. Well, perhaps we could now talk a little bit about Joseph F. Smith's congressional testimony. And it's quite clear that he has some rather hostile interrogators, if I can use that word. The questioning is fairly brutal at times, trying to trip him up or trying to really cut to the heart of the matter. But one of the central elements, I guess, of the criticism or the worry about Reed Smoot is whether he would be independent of President Smith and the other church leaders. So how does President Smith address this issue? He gives the traditional line, which is nobody's bound to accept anything. You're not even bound to accept the political manifesto. And Moses Thatcher didn't. Now, there were repercussions for him not accepting the political manifesto. But it basically was, we don't make anybody do anything. Simple as that. I've read lots of the correspondence between Joseph F. Smith and Reed Smoot when Smoot was a senator, and there's a lot of talk about what Smoot should have been doing. And he could have chosen not to follow that, but he didn't. This is tough. Going back to Joseph F. Smith, he was questioned as part of this investigation for five days. And afterward, he had said that he firmly believed the Lord did his best he could with the instrument through whom he had to work. 
And so it kind of sounds like (laughs) he was satisfied with the answers that he gave. But can will you just speak a little bit to the public's reaction to Joseph F. Smith's testimony? I think most members of this church were just fine with it. I think there were probably some Democratic members of the church who thought it was not entirely forthright. I don't think that Joseph F. Smith's testimony in the Smoot investigation by the the Special Committee on Elections was very convincing to most non-members of the church. I think they thought he was manipulating things. He was not being fully straightforward. Well, we hear about the public outcry and right. all of the knowledge coming out that he's still living with his five wives. And so I suppose in many ways, people do doubt the credibility of, of his testimony. I mean, it's a rather unenviable position. Oh, to- he was in an impossible position. And my guess is that a lot of Americans didn't understand. It's not a very subtle distinction. But to most Americans, it would probably seem like a subtle distinction as to whether we're talking about new polygamous marriages or continuing relations between existing polygamous partners. To Mormons, it was a huge issue. Joseph S. Smith, interestingly, was charged and pled guilty to a charge of unlawful cohabitation in November 1906. And he said, uh, at least according to the New York Times, which ran a front page article on his conviction of unlawful cohabitation, He said, oh, it was always the tacit understanding that we'd agree not to permit any new marriages, but there's always been a tacit understanding that Americans are forgiving, magnanimous people, and they're not going to make us leave our wives or stop having children with our wives or limit our, our relationships with our wives that we married before the manifesto. He testified under oath. I mean, the only thing that's sort of roughly analogous to the Smoot investigation and having church leaders testify under oath was in 1891 when the church was trying to get assets back that had been taken under the Edmunds Tucker Act. The entire first presidency and a number of senior apostles testified under oath in November 1891 to master in chancery. It just means it's a specially appointed judge in chancery that the manifesto meant no more relations between existing married couples, no polygamy in Mexico outside of the United States. And uh, a week or two later, in a meeting of the Quorum of the Twelve, Wilfred Woodruff, who's the president of the church, who has testified that it applies everywhere, it applies to cohabitation as well as new marriages, he testified that he was put in a position on the witness stand to answer. He could not have answered any way other than he did. You know, he was in a horrible position. I mean, it, it's easy to understand. It's easy to rationalize. It's easy to say exactly what he did. How could he answer any otherwise? And then he went on to say, but if any man abandons any of his polygamous wives over what I say, that's who I'm going to be mad at. And Joseph S. Smith testified before the master of chancery and said, this applies to unlawful cohabitation. And then he has however many children he had by three or four wives after the manifesto, which is, you know, seven or eight or nine children in clear violation of federal and and after 1896 Utah law. Well, this subject was actually spoken about by President Dallin H. Oaks a number of years ago, and I just want to share a quote from his presentation. It says, My heart breaks when I read of circumstances in which wives and children were presented with the terrible choice of lying about the whereabouts or existence of a husband or father on the one hand, or telling the truth and seeing him go to jail on the other. I do not know what to think all of this. 
Except I am glad I was not faced with the pressures those good people faced. My heart goes out to them for their bravery and their sacrifices, of which I am a direct beneficiary. I will not judge them. That judgment belongs to the Lord, who knows all of the circumstances and the hearts of the actors, a level of comprehension and wisdom not approached by even the most knowledgeable historians. And I think that statement's just so accurate. We don't know how they're going to be judged. And they were faced with an incredibly difficult situation, difficult decisions, and the judgment is the Lord's. It is. Well, Ken, we find that after several days, you know, five days of questioning, President Smith is now back in Utah having to try and clarify the church's position. Let's go ahead and listen to this extract from the book. The statement did not condemn the 200 or so couples who had entered into plural marriage after the manifesto or censure those who had continued to live with their plural families since that time. Yet it declared that new plural marriages were forbidden from now on, even outside the boundaries of the United States. So, Ken, how did the manifesto, the second manifesto, affect the existing plural marriages? Did we suddenly see all of these men and women breaking up? I I don't think so. I don't think it was intended to have the effect of breaking up existing relationships, and I don't think it did. And maybe, if anything, it, it provided kind of a weird, almost tacit understanding to people that, you know, what we're really worried about is new marriages, no new marriages, but existing marriages we're not going to touch. I don't think that I have read the Second Manifesto recently, and I think it very carefully skirts the cohabitation issue. And so the post-manifesto polygamy stuff is not only a really interesting a historical issue for me. It's a very complicated personal family issue uh, for our family. And it's very difficult to figure out how to resolve it. And I understand exactly what was happening. Lillian Hamlin had essentially been espoused to another son of George Buchanan that he adored, who died on a mission in Germany in 1892, didn't have children. George Buchanan wanted somebody to have children for him. And so what happened in the Salt Lake Temple on June 17, 1896, is that Joseph S. Smith, even he would not deny that he did this, performed a proxy marriage between David Cannon, Abraham Cannon's brother, and Lillian Hamlin. So it's just, you know, you're being sealed to someone who is dead. And Abraham Cannon is standing in as the proxy for his brother David. I believe what happened immediately after that or as part of that, is that Joseph F. Smith also solemnizes polygamous marriage between Abram and Lillian. So George Buchanan, as an ultra believer in polygamy, believed it was a serious problem for his son David to have died without being married, but more important, without having children. And so the reason George Buchanan wanted someone, preferably one of his children, to marry Lillian Hamlet for their brother was to have children for They called it seed. You know, he died without seed, which is a weird sounding term to me these days. And so, you know, it was based on very deep personal reasons that that marriage took place. But it is so problematic in terms of the I'm not sure there would have been a smooth investigation, but for the marriage of Abraham Cannon and Lillian Hamlin. I mean, it caused a huge stir. And is by far the most well-known, notorious, problematic 
of all the post-manifesto polygamous marriages. Well, you're clearly the right person to have on because it's great that you firstly know the subject, but also you have that connection to it. I mean, I, I, I'm a convert to the church. I have no connection to it. I mean, polygamy is this kind of strange alien thing really doesn't impact me and same for many other latter-day saints in the church globally but there is this legacy there, there is well as james mentioned in the beginning of this episode there's a lot of topics and and ground covered in this chapter and one of the interesting stories that stuck out to me was of bathsheba smith she's 79 years old she's called as the general relief society president and this was actually the first time that priesthood quorums were asked to give their sustaining vote for a new Relief Society general presidency, which I thought was really neat. But Ken, will you just tell us what you know about Bathsheba Smith? Well, she was married to George A. Smith, who was a prominent leader in the first presidency, did a lot of really interesting things, could be a little controversial on a few things, and was a very uh, powerful personality. And she matched him toe by toe in terms of powerful personality. I mean, he didn't push anything by her. She's got this great memorial headstone up in the Salt Lake Cemetery next to her husband's, and I like hers a lot better. It's kind of cool. It's a really interesting headstone, which is perfectly appropriate. I think she did a lot to give the Relief Society credibility. As you say, you know, the priesthood quorums decided to approve it, but she had all the best things about the Relief Society she pursued, you know, where charity never faileth, you know, making sure that for education of mothers, for uh, figuring out how to, how to take care of households and families, she just did a great deal to make Mormon mothers a lot better, mothers and women in Zion, and she's an impressive gal, and was widowed forever. I mean, George A. Smith died a long time before she did. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing some of these fascinating insights that you've spent many years studying and, and reading about. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners who are interested, there are church history topics on many of the things we've covered in today's episode, including the succession of church leadership, the Relief Society, and also the Reed Smoot hearings. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you. <laughs>